Well, hello, everybody. Today, we're going to talk about everybody's second favorite topic after COVID-19, the, the information blocking rule. Uh, around this time last year, I gave an, an update on some regulatory items uh, that would be coming over the next few years, and, and this was one of them. Um, today, we will review the rule, and we'll also, uh, we invited Pamela Pop, the Chief Risk Officer for, for Gallagher-Bassett, Gallagher to discuss some of the risk and compliance implications. So thank you so much for joining. Um, we've gotten a lot of questions over the last year about it, and hopefully we'll be able to answer some of those today. So again, uh, really don't have anything to disclose, and I'll go through some of the learning objectives. Uh, first, really, I just want to review the rule and what it means for your practice. Uh, for those of you that um, you know, haven't noticed or, or have forgotten what it is, we'll, we'll go through what it means. Uh, then we'll talk about ways that you can decrease your risk and also some, some of the consequences for, for non-compliance. So the information blocking rule came out of the 21st Century Cures Act that was signed into law in December of 2016. And, and part of the purpose of that law was really to uh, push to modernize our medical infrastructure. Um, so it did a lot of different things. Um, and really this information blocking rule and, and defining interoperability was, was only a small portion of it. Um, but it has had a, an outsized impact on a lot of our physician practices, so we'll go through it in, in much more detail. So here is the, the full definition um, you know, from the rule. It says, in general, information blocking is a practice by a health IT developer, uh, health information network, health information exchange, or healthcare provider that accept as required by law or specified by the Secretary of HHS as a reasonable and necessary activity is likely to interfere with access, exchange, or use of electronic health information. And really that, that last clause is, is really um, what we're going to talk about. It's, it's anything that interferes with the access, exchange, or use of electronic health information. And so electronic health information has its own definition. Um, essentially, it's any health information that's in an electronic format. It, it does include payment and claims data. Um, and if you read that last kind of bolded uh, bullet point, that's really what we're going to talk about. It's it's anything that you use to make a medical decision about a patient. Uh, so you have data in electronic format about a patient and you use it to make a decision about that patient, then it's electronic health information. Here is the, the updated timeline for the information blocking rule. So at this time last year when I, I gave the presentation, it was supposed to take effect in in November of last year, um, 2020, but it got pushed out to April of 2021 thanks to the pandemic. And the first phase of this really only applies to what's known as the US CDI. We'll go through what that means in just a second. Uh, but the full implementation of the rule continues on and after um, October of 2022. So we've, we've made it this far, but there's more to come and we'll kind of discuss what that means. Uh, for October towards the end of the presentation. So what is the US CDI? That is the US Core Data for Interoperability. It's a subset of electronic health information. Um, so all electronic health, all information that's in an electronic format is the EHI, a subset of that data is the US CDI, which is what we went live with in April. Uh, and it's just a standardized set of, of health data classes and data elements. Uh, with the purpose being to kind of set a foundation for sharing electronic health information. What all does it include? It includes a lot of things that you've been used to seeing if you're, if you're using Care Everywhere or other health information exchanges. 
um, allergies assessment plans, care team members, clinical notes was the big one of the big additions to this. Goals of care, health concerns, immunizations, lab tests, medications, demographics, uh, problemless procedures, provenance, uh, which is really just the metadata around some of these data types, like who signed the note and when, uh, smoking status, device identifiers, and vital signs. And so, yeah, when we went. When this was first announced, uh, one of the questions was, well, what clinical notes are included? Um, and you can see all the note types that are listed, consult notes, discharge summaries, HMPs, imaging narratives, lab report narratives, pathology narratives, procedure notes, and progress notes. And so you know, one of the questions was, well, does it matter who wrote the note? Uh, we got that question early on, and a lot of us, um, a lot of places, ourselves included, had interpreted that to mean just provider notes, since a lot of these were typically written by providers, uh, but the ONC clarified in January that it actually included anybody that wrote one of these note types. So if a, a nurse wrote a progress note, then that would have to be part of this US CDI uh, that was going to be released. And if a you know, physical therapist wrote a consult note, same, it would need to be released. Another piece of confusion is the image narratives, lab report narratives, pathology report narratives. A lot of us you really characterize those as, as results and not necessarily clinical notes just based on where they live in the chart. Um, and so it was confusing for us because we went live with clinical notes uh, being released in January and not lab results immediate release until April. And so there's confusion about would those be live in January. And um, there's actually been some people that have asked ONC to kind of remove the those from the clinical notes section just to um, try to simplify it and make it you know, flow better. Um, but regardless, you know, they all kind of fall under the same categories that have to be released with the USCDI. So what is information blocking per ONC? What are some examples of this? Well, you can implement your technology in a way that would limit what is exported. Um, you can configure the system to remove important context or structure. Or the big one is you can implement unnecessary delays or response times um, that would limit the timeliness of EHI access or exchange. And we'll talk about that one a little bit deeper. Um, so, you know, the ONC has this uh, FAQ out there where they answer a lot of the questions that we've been getting. Um, but we get asked a lot about uh, delaying lab results, specifically results that might relate to a diagnosis of cancer or other sensitive topics. But they make it pretty clear in their FAQ that delaying results just so that the ordering clinician would have time to personally review them with the patient would likely be considered information blocking. Um, the same question came up in the context of emergency department visits for us. Uh, we actually had some patients that have been leaving without being seen after they, they get the results from the ER. Um, but, you know, again, this FAQ really makes it clear that if the sole purpose of delaying is so that you can communicate the results to them, then that would be considered or likely to be considered information blocking. There are some exceptions to the information blocking rule. There's eight in total. Uh, the two that apply to us most are the preventing harm and privacy exception. And we'll talk about those. So the preventing harm exception stipulates that you can block or delay the information if you as the treating physician believe that the patient will harm themselves or others based on the data. Uh, stipulates that it must be done on an individual basis, so you can't have a blanket policy that blocks or delays certain types of data. 
And they, they have specific uh, FAQs on this one as well. This one was published in January. Um, you know, they go into a lot of detail. One of the things that comes up often is the suggestion that a radiologist or pathologist should be able to block or delay information. Um, but one of the things they, they point out is that that decision to block or delay has to be based on a clinician-patient relationship where the ordering physician believes, based on what they know about the particular patient circumstances, that would be a risk to that person's life or physical safety. So, you know, that that's really the key um, that we keep coming back to is it can't just be that the patient's going to be upset about it or that they're going to be anxious about it. It has to be that the physician believes it's going to be a risk to their life or physical safety, according to the ONC. Uh, the privacy exception is a little bit more straightforward. Um, you know, you're, you're not required to, to share law, uh, share data if a law, a state law or federal law prohibits you from doing so. Um, so the state laws kind of supersede this um, with the privacy exception. And then if the patient asks you not to, then you don't have to. Yeah, the enforcement for the information blocking rule is, is still a little nebulous. Um, at least for providers, but for EHR vendors and health information networks and exchanges, it can be $1 million per event, uh, and it can be a certification ban for health IT developers in violation of conditions of certification. Um, for providers, which is what we are, we are actually ex expected to hear the OIG final rule this month, so we're going to get some clarity about what that means. Um, I heard it was supposed to come out this at some point this month. Uh, of note, you can now go to the ONC website uh, where I pulled this information, where the FAQs are, and uh, report information blocking. Uh, I went and, and started the process uh, yesterday just to see what it was like, and it does ask you to fill out a bunch of information, but patients and, and others can, can go in and anonymous, anonymously or, or by name uh, report individuals or, or, or individual practices or hospitals for information blocking now as of April. And so what has been the, the impact um, to Baptist and uh, since implementation of the information blocking rule? You know, we've gotten a, a lot of feedback from our physicians about individual uh, events that have occurred, a lot of them uh, involving um, malignancies being diagnosed uh, over the weekend with the patient reading about it first and a lot of angry calls or, or concerned calls to the, the physician clinics in the middle of the night. Um, and again, we heard about the emergency department patients leaving. We, um, but as far as overall volume of messages, that was one of the big concerns with a lot of people um, before going live with open notes or other things that patients were going to start calling a lot more. Uh, They're going to be overwhelmed by the burden of patient calls. Uh, and this is our data from Signal. It's kind of our uh, efficiency data that comes out of Epic that tells us how many messages you're getting a day. So this is all our in-basket volume for, by specific message types. Um, and these are the ones that are directly related to, to patients initiating the message. And you can see, actually, let me use my fancy laser pointer, which Teams lets us do. Um, April is when we went live with the lab results and um, uh, imaging released uh, immediately and then January is about when we turned on the notes released. So you can see really there hasn't been a, a change in overall my chart notification since that time. We're above the 75th percentile, which is not where we want to be for sure, but it has not gone up um, significantly since April. Same for patient call messages and same for uh, patient advice 
advice request messages has been pretty steady. Um, and I did look at this for several different specialties. I looked at it for oncology. I looked at it for primary care and a few others, and it was the same. Um, no, no significant impact in volume of the messages. Um, and so how have we done as a system as far as compliance with, with note sharing? Um, this graph, it's a little bit hard to read, and I grayed out all the provider names, but essentially this is showing number of times that a note was blocked from being shared um, in about a one month period of time is when this uh, report had come out and this was for June. Um, so during this period of time we had about 717 notes that were not shared for that period. 38% uh, of those notes that were not shared were from one physician. Um, the majority though uh, of physicians that chose not to share a note did it just one or two times. And then we have about 10 that account for the majority of the notes that are not shared, probably you know, close to, to 90, 95%. Uh, we did meet with or call and meet and talk with these individual providers. Um, and I know the one that was not sharing the majority of the time has since stopped um, and is now not even showing up on the top 10 list. Um, and, and that kind of coincides with what ONC says about information blocking is that should really be rare um, so if you're if you're doing it frequently in your clinic, unless you have a very, very specialized clinic that deals with a very certain type of patients that would be at higher risk for harm um, with getting this information, that it really should be more like these one or two periodically. If you look at compliance based on you know, the types of notes, the most frequently type of note that was not shared was the, the progress notes. And about half of these were inpatient and half of these were outpatient. Uh, the rest of these note types are really out, uh, inpatient, uh, just a handful of consult notes, a handful of op notes, discharge summaries, and HMPs. The majority of the reason that they were not shared was um, because of the fear of patient harm was the reason that was selected. And you know, very few were because the patient requested not to. And so we get asked this uh, periodically. A lot of organizations, I know AMA and ACP and others have put out kind of what you can do as a provider to try to decrease, you know, some of that anxiety that patient might get from getting the result before uh, you have a chance to counsel them about it. Um, so some of the um, success, successful strategies that we've heard of is kind of doing more upfront counseling. So informing the patient that they're gonna have these results immediately um, and likely going to see them before you do, and explain to them what the next steps will be if something bad was found, like in a malignancy. Explain to them what could be found and what you would plan to do if, if each of these was found. Um, I know that would probably not work every time, especially if there's an incidental finding that you were not expecting, but that is what um, several of these have advocated doing. Others, you know, other considerations was there's a lot of anxiety about, well, patients are not going to be able to read the clinical notes. They're not going to understand it, um, which is true in a lot of cases. And so there's there's been some advocacy of, of ways you could alter your notes so that some of the things that uh, you say in it might that might offend patients, they might uh, feel a little bit better about it. So the obvious one is uh, SOB, changing that to shortness of breath. Uh, a lot of patients we're hearing reports of getting offended if you put morbid obesity or obesity in your note, you know, which our, our coding team definitely wants you to continue to do. 
um, because that, you know, it's, it's an appropriate diagnosis code. Um, but one of the ways that maybe you could be less offensive by doing it and some advocate is putting like obesity by medical criteria. Um, other ways would be saying patient is non-adherent as opposed to patient refuses. One of the things I'll, I'll point out is another thing that you can do with your, your notes, particularly on the outpatient side, after the, the E&M coding guideline updates that, that took place in January this year, is take out all of the things that you no longer have to include in there and really just include the, the pertinent things that you discuss with the patient. So, you know, if you're, if you're not doing a full review of systems and a full physical exam on every patient, but you had previously included that in your note as just part of your usual template, that may be something that you want to pull out now that patients are going to see these, you know, in, immediately after you sign them. And so they'll, they might question whether or not you did that full head to toe exam if you maybe did not do that during that visit. So that, that may be something that would uh, decrease some patient confusion and, and decrease some, some calls. Um, so what is going to be next for information blocking? So I mentioned that you know this first piece, this USCDI that we went live with in April was just the first element. And October of next year is when we're supposed to start releasing all electronic health information. <coughs> Excuse me. So some of the questions I was getting early on uh, during this project and this transition was, well, can I write a separate note type um, that is not one of those USCDI note types that I can hide from the patient and not share um, so that the patient will not, no longer see it? Or can I put this information in a sticky note in the chart? Or where in the chart can I put information that I don't want the patient to see? And, and right now, you know, there's, there's several areas that are not being shared with the patient that you may be able to use for this. But in October of next year, you're no long, all of that information, if it's used to make a medical decision, if it's uh, electronic health information, will have to be shared with the patient. So it, it's no longer going to be a viable option to hide something electronically in, in the chart away from a patient. But that is kind of the general overview and review of, of where of what the information blocking rule is, uh, what has happened to us in the last year, and uh, what's going to happen over the next year. And now I would like to turn it over to Pamela to talk a little bit more about the compliance and risk management implications. Pamela, you may need to unmute yourself. All right. Is that better? Yes, we're getting an echo. All right. You should be able to hear me now. You're good. Okay. Well, let's go, go ahead to the next slide, please. <coughs> when we're thinking about the open rule, what we really want to do is think about it in the context of remembering what medical charting is really about. And it, this is really an opportunity for us to communicate not only to the patient, um, but also, you know, the goal here is to communicate any information that we are going to take into account when we're making any diagnosis or uh, treatment decisions. So we always want the chart to be as complete as possible, um, not only because it is communication tool for 
obviously the primary purpose, but also because ultimately if we do have an adverse outcome, we use it as a defense strategy as well, going back and looking at what the chart said at the time. So we really don't want individuals to think about changing the way that they're charting now that the patient has access to the information. We want that same completion and contemporaneous notes. We may just want it phrased in a way that is going to be a bit more understanding to a layperson. Next slide. So you heard um, really that our charting guidance here is to make sure that it is, and this is not new information. We always advise that charting is clear, objective, factual, and brief. We also want to make sure that it actually explains why certain treatment decisions are, um, are being pursued, why certain treatment plans have been decided to pursue. Um, we also want to make sure that when we're looking at the chart, that if someone were to have to step in and take over the care of this patient, that they're going to understand the thought process behind it. So not only do we want to have what is actually happening, but we want to understand a bit of why did we choose to go this route with our treatment plan, and that information is also going to be very helpful when it comes to the patient's interpretation of that. Next slide. So <clears throat> ultimately it comes down to why to comply. Well, of course, it's a federal statute, so um, we don't have a whole lot of choice in that regard. And of course, we have Baptist policies that requirements. But ultimately, we really need to think about this not as a, a hindrance to anything we're doing, but in fact, an opportunity to increase our communication with our patients. We also need to remember that the, the penalties that are in place geared more to the entities than to individual providers at this point aren't covered by insurance. So that's always a motivator as well for compliance. So we just really want to make sure that we're preventing surprises in what's being communicated to our patients because we really should be charting what has already been conveyed. If we're going to take blood work or run lab tests, that patient should already be educated on what it is we think we're looking for. So in that instance that the patient does the results before we get a chance to communicate with them, they understand that those were already things we were looking for. So we want to make sure that if we're ordering tests, lab results, um, that we really are communicating to the patient on why we're choosing to do that. That's just good practice, um, but becomes more important when we have a patient who's going to be in there looking at lab results and everything else. Next slide, please. So we do, of course, anticipate some challenges when it comes to implementing the open rules. Um, we are going to have situations where the patient may have con uh, concerns or, or want to have a conversation around the diagnosis. And so there are situations where there could be a finite amount of time where that information could be put on hold and the patient could be reached to be able to explain those test results. But this really should be the exception because, as I mentioned, when we're doing these lab requests, we're going to want to make sure that that patient, in fact, knows why we're choosing to do those tests. 
And so by having that conversation at the front end, if the patient does in fact end up having access to the records before the provider has a chance to communicate them, they shouldn't be surprised by what's in there. But we do have that exception that allows us to say, if we truly have fear for a patient and their safety, we can in fact delay that. So we're not saying that that is an option to consider unless you have that truly unique situation where in fact you have a fear that the patient is going to go out and actively take a response because of this diagnosis. Most people are not going to have that type of immediate harmful response if they already know what it is we're looking for with the tests and the labs that we're choosing to pursue. So really, really the exception to the rule and if you were to hold the information, it also helps you to have it documented as to why and the amount of time, that, that finite amount of time that you're using to then communicate with the patient and then making sure that the note is released after that. Why would you do that? Well, you would do that in order to then be able to defend any allegation that you know, the patient felt that there was a delay in conveying the information. So we want to look at entries that we're making not only in a way to enhance our patient communication, but also thinking about if we're looking back on this chart four or five years in the future, are we going to understand why we're making the decisions that we do? One of the areas that I know uh, individuals are concerned about is how is a patient going to react if they see things like... Um, I'm suspecting that there might be domestic abuse, or I'm suspecting that there might be uh, illegal drug use. Well, we're just going to have to be careful about how we write it in there, but because that's information that's going to drive our treatment decisions, it has to be in there. So we want to make sure that, that if the patient, in fact, says to us, yes, I've been using illegal drugs or um, has concerns about their household, that it is in the chart because we're making decisions on it, but we also want to make sure that we are stopping and just thinking, am I charting this in a way that is going to surprise the patient in any way? And if so, you need to think about rewording it. But ultimately, we're relying on you to have those communications with the patient ahead of time so that there aren't surprises in the documentation. It's important for the patient to know that everything, their environment, um, things they're going through, all of that impacts their treatment and plans. And so knowing that ahead of time, they're going to be less surprised about what they see in this chart. We also have the issue of patient accountability. How do we say this person was non-compliant in X, Y, and Z? Well, we want to make sure that we, in fact, put it in the chart because it does impact their treatment plan if they're, in fact, not showing up for appointments. Um, or not being able to take medication. So we want to make sure that that information's in there as well and that we're not trying to withhold that in any way because we think the patient might respond to it. Next slide, please. So as we mentioned, the penalties right now are not provider-specific, but that's not a reason to not comply. Um, right now, the, the focus is really more on the IT side of the um, open records, and also on the entity side. But that doesn't mean it isn't going to change moving forward and that um, as better 
processes are in place to be able to look at which individual provider is making decisions about withholding information, that there isn't an accountability that comes with that. So we also want to mention that, you know, that's one thing we want to stay on top of is looking to see what the penalties may be for individual providers moving forward, but also remembering that those penalties are not covered by insurance. So the goal of a penalty, of course, is to punish. And so we would want to try to make sure everything that is being done within Baptist is in compliance with the rule. Next slide, please. So you are going to have situations probably where you have questions about, is this a situation where a patient might in fact harm themselves? Should I in fact think about reaching out to the patient before they have a chance to see the lab results? Always know that you have the option to contact your risk management department. They can walk through situations that are going to come up that are going to be sensitive. And it's better to have that conversation with them so that you are in fact able to put as much as possible in the chart and ultimately be able to not only communicate the information to the patient, but again, have the ability two or three or four years down the road that if we have to come back and defend decisions that are made, that we have the rationale in the medical record. And some of these things that we know we're gonna come up and we're just gonna to want to deal with them on a case-by-case -case basis are gonna be things where we might have sensitive patient discharges from the practice, um, where we do have concerns about uh, either the safety of the patient or the safety of the individuals of the practice. We're going to have maybe decisions where, you know, the, the patient is unreachable and we need to be able to document whether or not we need to release this information to someone else on their behalf. So we know unique situations are gonna come up and it's just important to reach out to risk management and be able to talk through those situations. And then as you find, you know, some of this information is gonna be conveyed in a way then that you can use it in other situations. But knowing we're gonna have some unique ones We've already got the response for you, and that's to contact risk management so that they can walk you through what some of the wording should be, or in fact, if it's a situation where some of the information should be withheld, but again, only for a finite period of time. 